0: Good morning. My name is Matt Moses, and and I have the privilege of reading Scripture. Today's Scripture is 1 John 4, 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the Spirit of truth, and the Spirit of error. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. Good to see everybody today. Welcome to Disciples Church. We're so glad to have you. Uh, as always, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are uh, excited to get into this book once again this morning. So, if you're not already there, please turn in your Bibles to First John, chapter four. First John chapter four. Well, I hope this book has, has been an encouragement and a blessing to you. This book all through the way, has been leading us to one final goal, which is the assurance of your faith. Where is your faith actually rooted? Where is your hope for salvation? Uh, where does the confidence for the Christian life rest? And what we have found through the first three chapters is that it rests exactly where we would think and hope that it rests, which is in the finished work of Jesus Christ himself. That there is nothing we are doing to contribute to our salvation, to add to our salvation, to maintain our salvation, to secure our salvation. But that once and for all, what Jesus Christ accomplished for us gave us everything we need in the Christian life. And not only for our salvation, but for the daily confidence and strength to do what it is God has called us to do. And that primary commandment, as we addressed it last week, that God calls us to and reminds us of and invites us into, the primary commandment that he wants us to obey is to trust and rest in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what we discovered at the very last verse, 1 John chapter 3, and that really kind of gives an indicator as to where John is going to go as we begin chapter 4, because as we come to this text, as we spent all of this time addressing the reassurance that Christians are given about the state of our salvation, the goal that John wants us to lead us to is that we would be absolutely assured that we belong to Christ. In other words, God's intention for you within the Christian life is not that you would go through meandering and wondering and and questioning whether or not you know these things to be true, but that you would have all the confidence in the world of who Jesus Christ is, of what it is that he's enabled in you, what it is that he's brought about in you, so that you can then do whatever it is he calls you to do in your life. And the final assurance that John gave us last week, though there are more assurances to come, the final one that we addressed last week in 1 John three twenty four, is that the, the assurance we are given is the fact that we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit himself. That the Holy Spirit actually gives testimony of your belonging to your soul that he is the person and the means by which you abide in God. And perhaps even more amazingly, as if that's possible, the confidence that God himself abides in us. And that's familiar language or a familiar idea, the idea of us abiding in Christ and and the Holy Spirit abiding us. That's familiar language to you if you've been around the church for any length of time. But I think, I think it's a concept that we very easily take for granted. It is so familiar it's so commonplace it's so everyday in terms of our understanding of it that we no longer understand how significant and amazing and profound the truth is that john presents in this text because the picture that john is painting for us here is that when you have been brought into new life in jesus christ when you've been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, when you've been given the eternal life of Jesus Christ, you are covered by him. You are embraced by him. You're held by him. You're surrounded, as it were, by him. It's as if you've been physically put, picked up and placed into Christ, surrounded on all sides. Nothing, according to the gospel, will remove you from the grasp of God himself. And likewise, the Holy Spirit of God indwells you. He enables you, he empowers you, he motivates you, he directs you, he is within you, which means that externally and internally, if you're here and you know the name of Jesus Christ and you are a Christian, you are protected and empowered by God himself. That we're invited to take solace in that. That spiritually speaking, you are made impenetrable. That Satan cannot get at you that you cannot jump out of his hand, that you cannot fall away from him, that your confidence day in and day out is that you have been placed into Christ and God through the Holy Spirit has been placed into you. Impenetrable, meaning that as if somehow anything could get through Jesus Christ and get at you, what it would meet is Christ in you. And that in all of this, the invitation that we have is an utter confidence and assurance of who we have been made to be in Jesus Christ. And now John wants to take a slightly different angle on this topic, which is that just as believers in Jesus Christ who actually do have the Holy Spirit, and if you're here and a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, that's part of the deal, it's part of what comes along with knowing Jesus Christ. That if you're here and you have the Holy Spirit as a believer but still struggle with assurance, in the same way there are others who claim faith in God, they claim to know God, they claim the title of Christian, but they do not actually have him. And so, in his effort to provide assurance to true believers and to correct false teaching, John is going to go after what motivated these Gnostics, these people who claimed that there was something external outside of the Bible, outside of God's work, some sort of additional knowledge that you need, an additional gift that you do not yet possess, by which you could actually know God. And he wants to go after that idea in this text. And here's how he begins. In chapter four, verse one, he says, "Beloved." Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, the Gnostics who had been part of the church, who had infiltrated the true church in Asia Minor, claimed to be speaking on behalf of God. They had come into the church with all kinds of confidence, with their own self-assuredness of, of their own giftings and their own talents and their own relationship with God. They claimed that they could participate in whatever they wanted to participate in. And because they had this additional knowledge, what they were participating in wasn't sin. So they participated in all kinds of immorality and all kinds of things that the Bible had specifically instructed Christians ought not be part of. And they claimed to do all of this in the name of God himself. They had come into the church and said, we've received this special enlightenment, this direct insight, this unique information from God, and if you, Christian, don't attain the same level of knowledge that we have, you'll never truly know him. And imagine how, how enticing that might have been for young Christians who had heard the truth of the gospel from the apostle John, who have been promised salvation, imagine how enticing it might have been for them to hear, you mean there's more? There's extra assurance? There's additional gifts? There's, there's things beyond the gospel that we get to participate in? But John in this passage is saying, I do not want you, Christian, to be unthinking or pliable when it comes to spiritual things. In other words, stop looking for what's new and different when you have yet to fully understand the basic truth of what you've already been taught. And the amazing declaration of this for those who are in Jesus Christ is that the gospel is not just the starting point for your Christianity. The gospel is not just where you begin as if there is something else to move on to. The gospel is the whole of the Christian life. That in the true gospel, which is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, The Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament and delivered in Jesus Christ in the New Testament, that in the promise of the gospel, through the death and life and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have everything you need already. You are lacking nothing. That the grace of God is something that cannot be explored to its depths. It's an ocean, it's something we will experience and dive into for an eternity. And so what John is going after in this text is he's saying when someone claims to be speaking on behalf of God, don't allow their mere claim to inform the way that you receive that information. You need to test what's being said to determine if it's actually from God or not. And John, in this critique, goes so far as to call these Gnostics false prophets. False prophets conjures up all kinds of ideas in our mind as to what that actually means. And so in order to understand why John is choosing this label for these people, we need to understand what the Bible means when it talks about prophecy. Because when we hear the word prophecy, particularly in our modern context, immediately what our mind goes to is the idea of foretelling being able to see the future, understand the future, receive a dream that gives us information about the future. And certainly in the Bible, we find examples of that sort of prophecy all over the place. The Spirit of God moving in particular people at particular times to reveal things that were going to happen. We think of individuals like Daniel or Joseph in the Old Testament who interpreted dreams of people like the Pharaohs or Nebuchadnezzar. And through those dreams, it was revealed to them what was going to happen in those kingdoms. Or think of the Apostle John himself, who wrote this text, who experienced the revelation of the Holy Spirit and wrote the book that's by the same name, Revelation, that the Holy Spirit of God had revealed things to him that were yet to happen. But the other form of prophecy that we find in Scripture is much more common, especially in the New Testament, and that form is simply forth-telling So you've got foretelling, predicting the future, being able to see what's going to happen through the revelation of the Spirit of God. And then you have forthtelling, which is just a proclamation of the truth of God's Word. It's what happens in evangelism. It's what happens in preaching. It's what happens in conversations between brothers and sisters in Christ, where they remind each other of the goodness and the confidence and the grace that we have through the Gospel of Scripture. It's speaking out and declaring true things on behalf of God. And that's the sort of prophecy that you see referenced, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, when the church gathered and some would give a message of prophecy. They were declaring what is true for the encouragement of the body. That is the sort of prophecy that these Gnostics claimed to be participating in. But the problem, according to John, is that what the Gnostics were saying did not actually come from God. They were promoting a message that served their own ends and glorified themselves and were simply attaching the name of God to it. And the book of Jeremiah gives a warning about hearing people like this. Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 16 God says it this way through the prophet, says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of false prophets who prophesy to you. They are teaching you worthless things and are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own mind and imagination and not truth from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, if somebody is saying something that advances their own cause and does not align with Scripture, you can be confident that it is not true, that it is not from the Holy Spirit of God, that it does not line up with what God would have you know. And what John is saying is that by virtue of what these Gnostics were doing, they were essentially violating the explicit instruction of God's word itself. Because to claim that God is communicating something to his people that A, does not actually come from God and B, does not align with the word of God, is the essence of what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. When you find that command in the Old Testament, not to take the name of the Lord in vain, what in essence that means is to take something, to take the holy name of God and use it to lend credence to something that he did not say. They were attributing something to God that was inconsistent with what he had revealed about himself. And the true believers in the church, as those who were young in their faith, were naively hearing these false prophecies and assuming that those speaking were teaching the truth. They were buying into the self-serving and dishonest narrative of false prophets. And far from speaking for God, these false prophets, according to John, actually furthering the cause of Satan. Now, that is a massive accusation, a massive one. He's saying that by virtue of the fact that they were detracting from the message and the power of the gospel and twisting scripture and furthering their own narrative, they were actively working against the cause of Christ. And so John, writing in this passage, is imploring these young Christians and you and I along with them to use discretion and wisdom in discerning if things that are being said are actually from the Holy Spirit or from other spirits. Now, we hear terms like spirits or evil spirits or demon or devil or Satan, and in our modern intellectual environment, we tend to be rather dismissive because it can feel antiquated for us to acknowledge the idea of Satan or evil spirits. It can feel like folklore. It can feel like magic. It can feel like a fairy tale to modern people. And yet, in this text, John is indicating that what these prophets were saying was not just untrue, and it was not just a misunderstanding, and it wasn't even just a self-serving lie, but it was actually inspired by something demonic. And that is something that makes us, in our modern context, very uncomfortable. We don't like the idea of talking about those things because as modern people, we want to be taken seriously. We want the world outside of the church to look at us and go, these are intelligent people, good people. They're people who are living through the right things. And when you start talking about evil spirits or demons or any of those sorts of things, we assume automatically that our credibility goes out the window with that conversation. But John here is implicitly attesting to the reality, in fact, explicitly attesting to the reality of a spiritual realm in which Satan is actively looking to undermine true believers in Jesus Christ. In other words, what John is saying is you have an enemy, a true enemy, a spiritual enemy who is doing whatever he can through whatever means available in whatever avenues are open to him to come after and undermine and attract and distract from the true message of the gospel in your life. And while people in a modern context dismiss this quickly, the Bible is full of this sort of language. And just to pick one text to back this up, in the book of First Peter, the apostle warns us, Be sober, sober, rather, be watchful, for your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks around seeking whom he may devour. And John here is saying, as John Stott, the great theologian, paraphrases, Behind every prophet is a spirit, and behind each spirit, either God or the devil. Before we can trust any spirits, we must test them. It is their origin that matters. And the reason that that's an important distinction to make is because oftentimes when when someone is speaking something and declaring something as true, what they have to say inherently may not feel objectionable. There are all kinds of messages that are given in the name of God that feel good to us, that sound consistent to us, that, that sound right in some version of our broken humanity, but do not line up with what God actually says. And in fact, undermine The means of the gospel in our life. And understand this as well, to the extent that you believe or do not believe in the idea of the devil or evil spirits, Satan himself is glad to take advantage of either your naive belief in false messages or your naive disbelief in him. And he'll do that in order to distract and deceive you into embracing things that sound good and promising and pleasing, but ultimately lead to destruction. So the obvious question then is this, how do we know what is from the Holy Spirit and what has been inspired by other spirits? Well, John gives us the answer in verse two. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Now, in dealing with the Gnostics, this is the standard that John has consistently laid out throughout the course of this book for how to determine what is true and what is real and what is right doctrine. And while on one hand it is simple enough for a child to understand, on another level it is specific enough to accomplish the job for which it's intended. How do you know if a message is consistent with Scripture? Well, notice the breakdown that John gives us here. He says, first, it comes from someone that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And that was particularly important for for this conversation about the Gnostics, because when John uses this word confess, what he's saying, as we've talked about before, is that to confess something is to agree with. It's to agree with what God himself has declared, not just in word, but in the actual posture of your heart, that your attitude, your mentality, your worldview, the affections of your heart are going, God, I want to agree with whatever it is that you say is true. And so I'm going to confess, I'm going to believe, I'm going to agree with only what you declare is true. And in order for a message to be identifiable as consistent with the word of God himself, the deliverer must first confess that Jesus is the Christ, which is the implicit instruction of this verse. It means that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one of God. And if you remember back to the introduction of our series, one of the things that we talked about in regards to what these Gnostics believed is that Jesus himself wasn't the Christ. He wasn't Jesus the Messiah, but they claimed that Jesus was just a very good man. A man so good and so righteous that the Messiah, the spirit being, descended on Jesus, chose him as an earthly vessel, and then before the death of Jesus Christ, left him. And so what John is saying is if you believe that Jesus is anything other than the Christ, if he is anyone other than the Messiah, the promised one of God, God in the flesh, if you view Jesus as anything else other than that, understand that you have bought in to false teaching. Your view of Jesus Christ does not line up with what God's word says. And there are countless people in the world today who look at Jesus and claim to love him, claim to love him as an example, claim to love his teaching, claim to love the way that he cared about people, claim to uh, love the way that that he sacrificed for other people, but refuse to recognize him as the Messiah, as the promised one, as the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sin of the world. They refuse to believe, in other words, that Jesus is actually God in the flesh. Now, this isn't the sole standard, but in light of the Gnostic controversy, it was the most important one. And frankly, we could apply this same standard to many religions today. So there are all sorts of people who claim that Islam and Christianity and the Jehovah's Witness and Mormons and Buddhists all worship the same God. One God in different names, revealed in different sacred texts, revealed in different cultural milieus. But if we're to discover whether or not those things are actually true, what we need to ask is what do those religions teach about Jesus? That's the first standard that John has laid out for us. And all you need to do is look at those different religious contexts and look at what they claim about who Jesus is to determine whether or not what they're teaching is real and true. Because right off the bat, with this basic standard, all of them other than Christianity are immediately eliminated. Islam teaches that Jesus was a prophet but is not God. The Jehovah's Witness believe that the, that the Trinity is not a true expression of God and that Jesus was created by the Father, not co-eternal with him. Mormons believe that Jesus Christ was the firstborn spirit of the Heavenly Father and a Heavenly Mother that he became God in the spirit world and was not divinely conceived by Mary. So according to this text, all of those religions by their own teaching are promoting a false gospel. And that feels exclusionary and it feels cold and it feels unloving to the world around us to say something like that. But remember how we defined love previously, that in the words of Thomas Aquinas, Love is willing the good of the other. Is it loving to encourage someone to continue on in belief that does not line up with Scripture and leads them into destruction? That leads them to a false hope and a false confidence in salvation in something other than Jesus Christ Himself? And this is the reason. Why this sort of warning from John is necessary today? Because there may be good and kind and moral people—people people that you would want to have as your neighbors—who believe they know God, who use much of the same language as Christianity, but but who mean and promote something entirely different about Jesus Christ than what God's Word teaches. And John is going to go, go is going to go so far as to say that what they are promoting is actively the work of the evil one, whether or not they're cognizant of it. So, how do we test every spirit? Well, looking at just the standard that's laid out in this text, the first question is, is what the speaker is proclaiming true about Jesus? Is it consistent with the teaching of who Jesus is, with the Bible's understanding of who Jesus is, with the teaching of Jesus himself, with the example of Jesus himself, or is Jesus' simply a means to something else? Is Jesus simply a means to get what you otherwise would want? Is Jesus simply a good teacher, but not actually God? Is Jesus a spiritual being, but not actually God? And second, is what's being said in teaching consistent with God's Word? So maybe the most obvious example of this in all of scripture comes in Acts chapter 17 when Paul is addressing the church in his his preaching and he specifically calls out one group of believers. He says, I went and I preached the gospel to all of these different people, but there was this one group of people, they were known as the Bereans, who are more noble, according to Acts 17, verse 11, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And why were they more noble? Why was their life more admirable, according to Paul? Because they received the word with all eagerness. In other words, they listened to what Paul had to say, but then they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. In other words, they didn't just listen to a message and go, well, that sounds good to me, or that sounds true to me, or that sounds real to me, or that sits right with me. No, they listened eagerly to the message. They clung on the words that Paul was preaching, but then they opened up the word of God to say, is this consistent with what God has revealed to us already? And the hope and the expectation for everyone who claims the name of Jesus Christ is not that you would just cling to the words of a mere individual who can be wrong who can be mistaken, and who can even, according to this text, be driven by something other than a love for the gospel, but rather that you would open the word of God for yourself and through the Holy Spirit of God that indwells you, discern whether those things are true and right. In other words, there's an individual responsibility. And as great as that individual responsibility is, God has not left you alone in it to figure it out. He's given you his word, incorruptible, perfect, un- inerrant. And he's given you the spirit within you to reveal things to, tr- to you, to, to show you truth, to lead you to Christ, to reveal error. And it's why we as Christians need to know what we believe. It's why we're ultimately dependent on the Bible alone as our rule of faith and practice. And so John continues in verse four with this, little children, just again that fatherly affection from John for these people. Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. Those are the evil spirits that he referenced earlier and the Gnostic teachers. You have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And in adding this comment, John is addressing in this passage the two most common errors people make about the devil, which were described very effectively by C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, where Lewis said this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which humanity can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils he's speaking about here, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And Lewis's ability to turn a phrase there is just so helpful because what he's saying is this. It doesn't matter if you disbelieve in the spiritual realm entirely as it pertains to the devil or evil spirits, a materialist in other words or whether you, are so, whether you have so dived into that world that you would consider yourself a magician, that you're personally into witchcraft. He says either way, the devil is happy because he can do his work in those moments. In other words, John wants us to be aware that the devil is active today in trying to distract and dissuade people from the truth of God's word. But I want you to notice the confidence that John gives here because, again, to the extent that you understand these things, this notion can be scary. But John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and God himself, does not want you to live in fear or to try to see the devil behind every bush. We are to recognize the fact that Satan is working in the world today, while remembering that Jesus has already won the victory over him. We sang about that this morning together. The victory has already been won. That though the devil is active, he is absolutely limited. God and the devil, contrary to the way it is popularly displayed, are not equal and opposite forces. There is no equality between them. And if you want to see this demonstrated, all you need to do is read the book of Job, where though the devil interacts in the life of Job and comes in and creates all kinds of mayhem in an attempt to get him to deny God, what does he first have to do? He has to go beg and ask permission. And what John wants you and I to understand is that while the devil is real and is actively working to undermine truth in our lives and in the lives of those around us, he is absolutely limited. And the one who dwells inside you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, the one who lives and dwells and abides in you is more powerful than anything else in the world, the devil included. But there is no fear for the Christian in this there is absolute confidence, absolute assurance of the Holy Spirit of God that indwells us, the third person of the Trinity who moved over the face of the waters in creation and led the children of Israel through the wilderness, who descended on Jesus at his baptism and brought flaming tongues of fire over the heads of the disciples at Pentecost, that same Holy Spirit indwells you. And he is infinitely greater than the devil. And John concludes, By saying this in verse 5, they, speaking here of the Gnostics, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He's speaking there to the idea of your identity, where your identity is derived from. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So John is saying, look, the Gnostics who left the church, they had always been a part of the world. Though they were in the visible church, Though they showed up on Sunday mornings and sang the songs and recited the prayers and participated in the life of the body, they were not of God, according to John. What they were is of the world. They had been influenced by something other than the Holy Spirit, and because of that, they had credibility in the world around them. Why did they have credibility? Because everything they said aligned with the world around them. They lived like the world, and they taught like the world, and they believed like the world. They just added in a little bit of religious flavor to what they otherwise would have done anyway. They had maintained the religious trappings and traditions, but what motivated their teaching wasn't the gospel or their love for Christ or their relationship with the Holy Spirit, but the affirmation that they received from the world around them. And what John points out is that the reason these Gnostics had credibility with the world is because their message was consistent with the world's. And it didn't contradict the world in any meaningful way. And the same thing remains true today. Because there are whole denominations, churches and whole denominations, that formerly believed and preached and taught and embraced a true gospel understanding, who have since abandoned the gospel and embraced a philosophy that is indistinguishable from the humanism that surrounds them, their view of the world, listen to this, their view of the world has shaped their understanding of God rather than their understanding of God shaping their view of the world. And at this point, many of those churches and whole denominations, they may be social clubs or political activist committees or service organizations, but what they are not are beacons of gospel hope to a lost and dying world. And ultimately, this is what distinguishes the message of the gospel from every other religious message Every religious message that is not breathed by the Holy Spirit, that is not consistent with the gospel, is ultimately going to be used by Satan to lead people away from the truth. So those ideas and philosophies, says John, should not mark us as Christians because we have nothing to do with them. By our very nature, we are from God, meaning we've been given new life. We've been born again. We're part of a new family, a new community, a new identity has been granted to us. Our identity now is in Christ. God is our Father. The Holy Spirit indwells us. And so when truth is spoken and shared and proclaimed, the Holy Spirit who indwells you confirms that truth in your soul. And to the extent that we wonder if what we're hearing is true, we search out the scripture to see what they say. And so the confidence that we have now in proclaiming the truth of the gospel is that those who are going to respond are exactly those in whom God is moving. Did you catch that in what John just said? Those who are going to listen to the true message of the gospel are those who are ultimately are connected to us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Which means that the pressure and the burden of changing the hearts and minds of others has been removed from us. That God's expectation is not that you, through your own winsomeness and your own ability and your own skill set and your own talents and argumentation are going to be able to talk people or convince people into Christianity, but rather through the simple proclamation of the gospel message, you can, be, you can rest assured that the Holy Spirit is going to do the work in people's lives that only he can do. And to the extent that you don't see somebody responding, as heartbreaking as that may be, you can rest absolutely confident in the goodness and the grace of God to move in their lives in ways that you may or may not be able to see until their last breath. Rest assured that according to Genesis chapter 18, the judge of all the earth will do right. Your only call, brother and sister, is to hold fast to the truth, to proclaim the gospel, and to trust God with the results. So test what you hear. See whether it lines up with scripture, see if Jesus Christ is glorified and made much of in it, or if ultimately what somebody is presenting is for their own benefit, or to lift man even higher in place of God. Proclaim the goodness of the gospel and trust him to do what only he can do. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can rest confident in your word, that your word stands the test of time. The word that we hold today is inerrant that we can believe what you say, because you are a God who always keeps his promises. And that one of those promises is that you who began a good work in us would be faithful to bring it to completion. So we thank you that the burden has been lifted, that you and you alone do the work, that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves, there's nothing we can do to maintain our own salvation or to secure our own spot. But at the very same moment, we can be infinitely assured because Jesus Christ did the work on our behalf that only you could do, and he did it perfectly. So now God, cause us to be wise and to be discerning as we hear people speak. Help us to identify what is true and what lines up with scripture and what does not. And help us to boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel, believing and knowing that only through the grace of Jesus Christ Can we stand before you in righteousness and acceptance? Help us to trust you to do what only you are able to do. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.